Guys, I am so excited to welcome my friend and my mentor, Ed Milette, to today's podcast. You guys, you have to know who he is, right? You, I, you've got to follow him on Instagram. You've got to be listening to his podcasts. I share his episodes all the time. I think he is one of my favorite teachers in this space, and I am so excited to share this episode with you because it's fire. Literally, I am so used to listening to him do podcasts while while I'm in my car and I'm like, I, I feel like I'm at a church service. I'm like, yes, preach. Like, they are going to have to edit this episode so hard because I could not stop. Like, amen. Yes, say it. Say those words. You guys, this is fire. Get ready to have your hearts lit up with today's episode of The Rise Podcast. I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is The Rise Podcast. I am, uh, first of all, I can't believe that you've never been on the podcast before. That feels kind of crazy. <laughs> that feels kind of crazy, uh, especially since I get to be real life friends with you and and get your real life mentorship. And I'm so excited that the audience will get to hear from you. I'm I'm sure they're already hearing from you, but uh, get to hear from you in real life on on the Rise podcast. Well, I'm blessed, and you know that you also reciprocate that mentoring with me, just like we were doing before we went live here. So I appreciate. It. I'm great grateful to be here for sure. So I think that so many of us follow you. I mean, and if you're not listening to Ed's podcast, if you're not following him on Instagram, he's one of my favorite uh, my favorite people on social media. I actually get to look up to and absorb your wisdom. But what I was realizing as I was prepping for this conversation is I actually don't know your business journey. Like, I only know you as Ed Milet, like my teacher, my mentor, my friend, this person who gives his wisdom and shares. I really don't know about your your story with your business. So I would love to hear that personally. I'm sure the audience would love to hear it as well. Sure. Uh, like most dreams, my uh, they don't show up looking like what you think they would. You know, most of the great things in our life didn't show up kind of exactly the way we thought they would look or be, yet they're blessings, Right. And that's sort of true for my business, my business life, too. My real business journey started right when baseball ended. College baseball ended. I had an injury, ended my career. And the short version was I was really down. I was back at home living at my parents' house. And uh, same bed I grew up in, same teddy bear, same Farrah Fawcett poster on the wall. That <laughs> dates me, but it's true. Um, and I was unemployed for about a year. My dad came home. My dad had just got sober from an AA meeting, came home and said, hey, I got you a job tomorrow morning. You need to show up at McKinley Home for Boys in San Dimas. I'm like, what in the world is that? He goes, I have no idea, but you're going because I'm tired of paying all your bills. <laughs> and I end up showing up there the next morning. I said, hey, I'm here for the job. I'm Eddie Milet. They go, what job? I have no idea. We go back and forth. I'm about to leave. They're like, come back when you know the job or at least who's hiring you. And I go, you know what? The guy's name is Tim. My dad said his name is Tim. They go, there's a lot of Tims here. And I go, well, I think he's an alcoholic because he was at an AA with my dad last night. And they go, oh, drunk Tim, cottage eight. And little did I know, that was my number in baseball, ironically, too, was number eight. But little did I know in about five minutes from that sentence to when I walked through that door, my whole existence on earth would change. And my entrance into business wasn't business. It was, it was children. And I walk through the door, and McKinley's an orphanage. So the boys there, it's all boys. It's a campus group home. They're all wards of the court. Either they're, when I say orphanage, their parents are either dead, incarcerated, or had been molesting them. Hmm. And my boys were all eight to 10 year old boys. And I have this opinion that if everything in your life happens for you, not to you, you and I both say that regularly, but it's yep. true. If you could figure that out in current time, you'd be a lot happier, though, than having to wait for hindsight. And I walk through this door and they're getting ready for school. There's these 10 precious boys there and they all stop right when I walk in and stare at me. 
And you have these eyes too, Rachel. It's interesting. These little boys have the same eyes as me. Anybody who grew up with any dysfunction when they were a child, any type whatsoever, our eyes are just different. Yeah. We just want to be loved and cared for and believed in. And that's what these boys had. And I connected with them instantly. I didn't have the same kind of dysfunction, but I knew what it was like to grow up with anxiety and stress in your house with my dad's drinking. And um, I fell in love with it. These boys, I'd, I'd be there when they got home from school, ready for school, Halloween, Christmas Day. I'd open their presents with them, their birthdays. And I fell in love. All these boys wanted was someone to love them, believe in them, care about them, and teach them how to live better. And from that moment till today, that's what I've been doing with my life. That's all I've ever done. I do it with adults now. And that, while I worked there, Rachel, I fell in love with this. Like, oh, I like helping people. Because before that, everything was about me and baseball and me becoming somebody and getting rich and famous. And I went, whoa, I like this, like helping people thing. And I got recruited into a financial company when I worked there and I was part-time and I went into business really weird. I didn't go in like a kind of a normal young person with like a big dream or material goals or a huge amount of even goals. I went in to like serve people, like help mm. people. And I ended up staying, making six bucks an hour at McKinley when I was making over a hundred thousand a year in my part-time business because I didn't want to leave my boys. Yeah. And then eventually it just dawned on me I could go help the parents of children and make a difference that way. And so I transitioned into the financial business um, in my mid 20s uh, out of that group home. And here we are today. It's led to other businesses from coaching people to, you know, startup businesses and angel investing and all these other things that I now do. But it started at McKinley Home for Boys and then that went into the financial business. It's incredible. Can you, so tell me what that transition is. Like I know my own journey in terms of, you know, being an entrepreneur and kind of building my name up in that way and then getting invited to speak because I had some knowledge on a topic and then kind of changing that into what I do today is, was, was that a similar journey for you? Exactly. Yeah. God hand was always on my life and I did the work and, um, <clears throat> I didn't know it, but in college I wanted the easiest major cause I was terrible at math, terrible at math. And I was kind of struggling, and our baseball coach goes, you know, you have a deep voice. There's a broadcasting major. I went, you're kidding me. So if I flunk out of baseball, I'll be on ESPN and be a broadcaster. <laughs> so I took I took uh, broadcasting. So my college major was communications. And when I got into the financial services business, first off, I was so, I'm such an introvert. When I'd have to get up, Rachel, and talk in front of the 10 boys all at once, I would be shaking and couldn't even put sentences together in front of 10-year-olds. Wow. Never mind the first time they put me up in front of the whole staff at McKinley. I mean, I if there wasn't a puddle on the floor when I was done, it's a miracle, right? <laughs> like I was just terrified. But I did have this kind of voice. And so in the financial business, I started to get up and get asked to teach what I was doing. And all of a sudden, these CEOs of these larger companies are like, hey, that was pretty good. Would you come talk to our company? <clears throat> I'm thinking, why would you want me? But I'd come in. And then they'd go, hey, host our strategic planning conference. And they'd refer me to another one. And then Tony Robbins saw me speak. And all of a sudden, people were like, hey, this is sort of a giftedness of yours. You have a lot to say. You're pretty good at saying it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of just morphed. There was like this path that I wasn't ready for, but I was willing to step into. And that's been sort of a, a thing I've learned with the guests on my show. Almost none of us that have had any real success at something, we're completely equipped or prepared, but we had the courage to step into an unknown space with a lack of preparedness that most people need a higher threshold. They're, they, they just are getting ready to get ready all their life. And I mm -hmm. sort of stumbled into speaking and all of a sudden that led to one-on-one -on -one coaching with these CEOs, which led to athletes and entertainers and then politicians. And then now I'm friends with Rachel Hollis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it, as you were talking, I was thinking about the the coaching piece of how you got into being this. I mean, you're you're a mentor for millions of people through the podcast and through your social. And then I know there are so many people who look to you for that one on one coaching or that mentorship in real life. And I I got to meet Ed. For those of you who are listening, I got to meet Ed on the phone. When I was in one of the hardest and most confusing times of my adult life, uh, which was on the other side of massive success, which sounds really odd that that might be one of the hardest times in your life, but Girl Wash Your Face had come out. 
and it had came and – and a lot of people don't realize this. The book had come out and it did okay. Like mm. it wasn't a, a runaway success. It didn't – and then all of the sudden it was like this snowball and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And the more it grew, the more out of control I felt because I was someone who had pursued goals and dreams my whole life and I always felt like, you know, pushing that, that like Sisyphus, like pushing the boulder up the hill and then all of a sudden – it's out of my control. And I had been praying for months, like, God, I need someone to talk to. Please, I need I, I need someone. I don't know who to talk to about this. No one in my family can counsel me on this. And then I must I, I started with the podcast and social media, and somehow you and I got connected. Yep. And Ed is such an incredible friend, even to people he doesn't know. He was like, Let let's just let's just get on the phone. Yeah. And I think we've talked for two hours. Yeah, and I but remember- I have to say something. One of the reasons was, I mean, I, you're being very humble, so I have to at least say this. <laughs> One of the reasons was, I just got chills, by the way, all over. I'm not kidding you. Wow, I love when that happens. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I must say this. One of the reasons was I was so enamored with you and so blown away by your work and your spirit and your ability to communicate it and who you were. And I just wanted to offer any tiny bit of help I could to somebody that I believe is changing the world. And I believe you are doing that, Rachel. I just got chills again. I'm not kidding. I love that. Wow. And and that's why it wasn't just that I'm a nice guy, although I appreciate that. It was that I see greatness in you. And every day you keep proving me right and a whole bunch of other people right. So that that was sort of, I, it was a little bit selfish on my part that I wanted to just be a part of anything I could do to help you change the world. You were that that was so kind. And I received that and take that in. Thank you. I wanted the reason I'm telling the story is because I wanted listeners to understand the kind of man that you are and that you sat on the phone with a stranger for two hours and (laughs) counseled me and coached me and gave me a therapy session. And (laughs) I remember you you said to me, you know, it's so important in life that you always have people who are further along down the road than you are so that they can look back and tell you you're safe. Yeah. And I mean, I like that, that memory, I remember getting off the phone with you and going into Dave and just like bursting out in tears Mm. because it wasn't, it was such an answer to prayer. Like I just so badly needed someone to talk to and you were that person for me. And I know, I know that you are that person for, so many people in the work that you're doing today because now you've you've made this shift from like those one-on-ones you're doing coaching with these CEOs now you're doing it on this massive scale with the podcast and the work that you do on social can you talk about that transition like how did you how did that come to be yeah um it's interesting because pe- people ask me a lot like how did you end up working with like some of these athletes and it was interesting i was seeking those identities, those associations you were talking about for myself. And so, and I'm not, not a name dropping thing. It's just part of life. I met like Sylvester Stallone very young and Phil Knight and Tony Robbins. I met these people young in my life and I went to them hoping to build friendships and hire those associations you talk about, the people further down the road. And what would happen in a lot of those occasions would they also wanted help. They wanted what I could bring to the table. And I turned my mentors into friends and that's the highest form of influence. All of us that have children, their school teachers are their mentors. And they certainly have an influence over their life. If you look back, there'll be four or five teachers that really influenced you. But as a parent, we all know the, the people that we know most influence our children is who they're around every day, which is their friends. And so I would encourage people that are listening to this too: try to turn some of your mentors eventually into friends. And the way they become friends is it's reciprocal. You help them and they help you. And you have more to bring to the table, whether it's just your love or your belief or your concern or your prayer, than you might think you have over somebody who's further down the road than you. You've done that for me, Rachel. And you know that. Right before we were on, I was asking your advice about something. And so it's a reciprocal thing. I'm not your mentor, even though I know that you count me as one uh, often and I've mentioned that in your book, but we're friends. And so you're my mentor and friend as well. The way it transitioned, the, the quicker answer then is that um, I got encouraged by enough of them uh, as I was doing it. Like, hey, there's this social media thing, and you know, you're at this stage of your life where we've all been really good to you. We've helped you go pretty far. I've built a pretty good amount of wealth, significant amount, thank God. 
why don't you take – and a couple of them, Tony Robbins being one of them, but several of them just said, hey, why don't you spend the next half of your life really serving mankind, womankind, peoplekind? And um, I was very introverted, very shy, uh, loved my privacy, but I just felt called to do it, and it's home for me, to be honest with you. My heart feels like I'm in the right place. I don't always know exactly where it's going to go or what it's going to end up like, but – it moved because I wanted to serve people. I didn't want to just help successful people become happier and more successful. I wanted to help people who had big dreams in their life have a mentor that maybe they couldn't get access to otherwise and, and help all people, not just high identity people, not just achievers already, but someone that's out there that's saying, I, I want to do something great for my children. I want my spouse to be proud of me. I want to make my parents proud of me. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to change my confidence. I don't know how to make a transformation. I don't know how to start a business. Would you help me? And that's been like the great honor. And I'm not saying this to be corny or anything like that. Like the most joy I've ever had is by helping average people in average situations do extraordinary things. It's been wonderful. So that's how it happened. Enough people encouraged me to do it. Yeah. So one of my favorite things that you, uh, you, you create so much content, your team is so incredible. So you guys do all sorts of great stuff, but one of my favorite things, and I was telling you this and, you know, I send you my voice memos every time is I love, Ed does, um, you do one-on-one teaching on the podcast. It's my favorite episode. I think that there are a lot of people who do podcasts and very few people who teach in a podcast. And so when someone does it, it's my favorite thing. You're one of very few people that I literally am taking notes. Um, What are some of the things that you feel like your audience over, let's say the last six months, that those episodes or those topics, like you've been surprised by how much people have responded to these specific things? Like, I want you to tell me yours, and I'm going to tell you the ones that I love the most. That you okay. I, uh, um, some of them that have really resonated. I did one called Blissful Dissatisfaction. And essentially what I was teaching on that one is that for most people in their life, they conflate happiness and satisfaction. They confuse them. They think they're the same thing. And so what many people do in their life is they delay their happiness until a future destination. I'll be yeah. happy when I get this relationship or that when my body is a certain way or when I have a certain amount of money or when I get the house or when I find my career, then I'll allow myself to be happy. They delay happiness until they think they need to be satisfied. And the problem with that is you're going to bring you with you to those places. And you and I both have a whole bunch of friends who have gotten to those destinations and are still unhappy. Absolutely. The the reverse of that is achievers have this flawed mindset where they think, well, if I really enjoy this right now, I'm going to lose my drive. So I got to delay my joy because I'm going to lose my edge. I'm going to lose my ambition. That's completely false. It seems logical, but it's false. The truth of the matter is, if you don't celebrate your wins now and enjoy it, over time, your brain gets less and less dopamine every time it happens. Your brain eventually goes, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even enjoy it when we win. I don't even enjoy the success. And so you must celebrate your wins. You must give yourself the gift of happiness now in order to continue to achieve. So I live what I call blissfully dissatisfied, meaning I'm a happy man, but I'm not satisfied. There's an incongruency between what I know I'm capable of and what I'm currently achieving. And that force field between those two things is really healthy. Dissatisfaction is awesome. Unhappiness is horrible. Yeah, I've learned to live with bliss as I'm dissatisfied. Um, I was just going to say, what does it look like for you today to celebrate the wins? Well, that's a great question. And the reason I made the program is it's something I had struggled with before, particularly Mm -hmm. for the latter reason, thinking, man, if I really enjoy this sucker, if I go to Ireland with my husband, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose all my drive, right? Mm -hmm. And um it's not true. So what it looks like for me today is, you know what I've done a better job of? Um, I've done a better job of giving myself a little credit, which is hard for me to say the sentence right now to you. That's why I hesitated. Yeah. But I give myself a little credit. And for me, because I'm a person of faith, I'm like, I think this probably pleased God. Yeah. You know? And I, 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 um, I really, really take time now to be present. And so enjoyment for me, I'm always happier when I am where I am, meaning Mm. I'm in the moment. We just did a conference and I spoke well, or we just had a conference call like this. The more present I am, the happier I am. And the less present, the more I project into the future or 
when I'm with my children, I'm thinking about work. Or when I'm at work, I feel guilty because I'm not with my children. Those are the moments where I feel the least happy. And so I've learned that just being present in the moment and being grateful for the moment gives me tons of happiness in the moment. It's simple as that. But with social media and the, the all of us often, I think even particularly for women, it's more this way, but it's for men as well. We just don't ever feel like we're enough. We just, yeah. we just you know, I'm not enough. I'm, I'm not a good enough mother, or I don't look like I should look, or I'm not making the money I should, or I'm making the money I should and I'm, I don't see my children like so-and-so does. And that would lead me to maybe one other one I put out today on comparison, which is comparison, and I know you talk about this too, is the thief of joy. Yeah. It's the thief. But there's an insidious comparison. It's easy. The easy teaching is don't compare yourself to another woman or man. Don't compare your finances to someone else. That's, that's easy. You know the comparison that's insidious is the comparison we actually do with ourselves. We compare our current relationship to a previous one, mm. or we compare the current status of our relationship to another time in it. Mm. Like, why isn't it like it was in week number five? Because it's not week number five. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the more you compare it to then, the more you drowning yourself with unhappiness. Mm. Or comparing your 50-year-old body with your 17-year-old body. Yeah. Or And so it's easy to go, I shouldn't compare with other people. Well, what about with yourself? That's the one that hurts the most is comparing, you know, a talk you give, Rachel, to the best one you've ever given. And that creates unhappiness. Maybe the one you did was just wonderful as it was. Yeah, maybe, that's maybe, good. Yeah. And so I, that's, th those are, there's a whole bunch and I'll give one more just as a gift, just a gift, but you know what I'm saying? Yes. I'm a big believer. And that's why I told you to upgrade all the time who you're hanging around. I, I, I have one called Unlocking Your Success Code, where I talk a lot about your identity. Your identity is the beliefs, concepts, values, things you believe to be most true about you. And that identity in your life, if we're being real here, is like a thermostat. I'm looking at one right now. It's sitting on the wall. It's set at 74 degrees in the room I'm in right now. That sets the temperature for your entire life, your identity. And you're never long-term going to exceed that thermostat setting for who you believe you're, you are and what you're worth. And so what happens in life is we start to get our results going and they get ahead of who we really believe our identity is. And we do get anxious. We get scared. We get uncomfortable. And then what we do, unconsciously, we sabotage it to cool our life right back down to believe what we, we think we're worth. Mm -hmm. And it happens over and over. It's the thermostat setting on our lives. We've, everyone listening to this has had this happen. You've, you've, you've been in a relationship. It's going great. And then all of a sudden, it's not. You've cooled it back down. Or your finances are getting going, and then they're back to where they were. Or your body, and it's back to where it was. Because if you don't change that thermostat setting, if you don't work on you, your identity, you can do all the external things right in your life. You will cool that sucker back down to your temperature that you believe you're worth. Just like this room. If I open the door and a bunch of cold air blows in here, 40 degrees of air, you know what happens? The heater kicks on and the room regulates to 74. It's mm. not the external conditions that dictate the caliber of our life. It's that dadgum thermostat setting. That's what it is. Yeah. And if we can change that, we change our whole existence on earth. And you have multiple settings. You have a faith thermostat, a financial one, a physical one, a relationship one. And so the way we adjust it is we powerfully associate with people who live at higher temperatures in those areas. Woo, yes. So, so, so <laughs> This I, is like when I listen to you in my car, but yeah. now you actually get to hear me cheer along with you. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm actually talking too much too, so sorry. <laughs> no, anyway. no, 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 no. You're perfect. You're perfect. Keep going. No. So those, those, are, those are things that I teach that I think, you know, to some extent really resonate with all people. And I, I just try to do something every week. And where all this comes from, just like for you, this is why I love you. I've had to learn these things because I was so bad at them. Yeah. So if you meet someone who really seems like they got their act together, me or you, let's say, right? And you're more vulnerable about this than I am, but I'm pretty vulnerable as a man about it. Like I had to learn these skills to function as a human. And what happened was the more I started to become more of a functioning human, the more I got addicted to developing me and improving me. And I wanted to learn more insights. And where you and I are, I think, the maybe the two most unique people in the space is that you and I converge. That's why I love you. We converge both faith and science together. Like we believe in the power of the brain. 
Mm-hmm. We also know that there's a higher purpose, a higher, for me, it's Jesus Christ governing mm-hmm. my life who, mm-hmm. who saved me, right? So for me, and I'm not trying to talk faith here, I'm both. I believe in the, I, I know where, if you, if you ask me, Ed, why are you really successful? If I'm being yeah. completely honest, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is many, many times in my life, my Lord just picked me up and carried me when I was down mm-hmm. and I was prayerful about it and prayerful about it. Same time, I've done a lot of dadgum work on myself. And part of my identity comes from that. I know I come from something greater than just what you see with me. So part of my identity yeah. is my faith. And so I, and I know that's true with you too. And, and so for me, that's just, it, it's wonderful to have people, because sometimes in the self-help space, I think they just start getting a little bit foofy for me. Yeah. It becomes all about self. Right. And, yeah. and, and that's a formula for misery. Yeah. I, I was thinking this. I, I said this to Dave last week as we're preparing for conference next week. And I told you before we started recording, there's a fair amount of anxiety that comes into that because I'm just carrying. That's a lot of people coming from all over the world. That's that's a lot. And I told him last week, I kept thinking about this idea that I cannot be afraid of this thing mm-hmm. that I'm about to go do. Because if I have fear about what I'm about to go do, it's implying that I am in charge of what I'm about to go do. And I have to believe that this is something that God gave me. This is an opportunity that I have been given. And he who started a good work in you shall see it through. And so if I have absolute faith that God brought me to this place, then I can't have fear walking into it because this was already planned for me. I love it. Right? So all I can do is just show up, do my absolute best, play full out, my whole heart in. But having that idea that something bigger than me put me here, and if something bigger than you put you here, then it can't, it's not on you to make sure that everything goes perfectly. Oh, I love that. I was just at a, <laughs> I was at a conference with all men. So sort of the reverse of, of what you're doing and all these guys, you know, Hey, you're in the gym and you know, you know, the reticular activating system in your brain and you know how to teach <laughs> all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, so what's the number one thing? And I'm like, um, bro, you want to know the truth? I'm kind of weak. And the, the Lord gives me comfort, man. Like mm-hmm. I just get comfort when I, every, I mean, it sounds easy, but I just go, Lord, this is all you brother. You yeah. got this. I love the parable of the sower in the Bible. And I love people of all faiths. You and I both do. Yeah. And, and but the parable of the sower is so wonderful because, and I always screw the scripture up because I'm terrible at that. But the concept is that you're planting the seeds. You must do the seed planting. If you don't do the seed planting, he can't provide a harvest. Mm. And and so I'm faithful that if I just plant the seeds, like you go, you prepare for that meeting, Rachel, you get everything you got. You love those women. You prepare for them. You want to serve them. You want to make a difference. He's going to provide an abundant harvest in that meeting for all of the ladies there that are ready for it. And that's how I look at everything I do. I just try to remind myself of both those things. Can can we talk a little bit? I want to talk about the first conversation that we had on the phone because you said something to me that day that I've I shared when I came on your podcast and and I've talked about many times and I think it's really interesting because I'm getting a question a lot more now that I've never gotten mm. and that's about the idea of the fear of success. Mm-hmm. And that day when we were talking on, uh, the the reason that I became obsessed with you is I was listening to you do a podcast, you're doing an interview, and you were telling a story about, um, you're, and you'll tell this better than I is, but the idea of like people who, let's say, because you've counseled a lot of sport, like athletes, mm-hmm. and you said um, the idea of like, if, if an athlete comes into let's say wealth, or they come into this um, success in their career that they, like if they have success at something and they don't have someone in their life who's like further along, who like if they're still hanging out with that crew, do you know that story that you tell? Yep. Yeah. Well, you tell that idea that it'll sort of, it, you have the sphere of success because you don't have anything bigger than the current vision that's in your life. You don't have anyone sort of like helping you see that vision. Well, that's a, it's a huge thing. So every, from an athlete to, um, Rachel Hollis to anybody that I, I talk to and work with, there is this fear of success is it's the fear of the unknown. And so, and because the reason you have an unknown, um, quantity about it is because you don't have somebody in your life who can define it for you. 
And so for mm-hmm. me, all these athletes, what happens is they make a bunch of money. And this isn't all athletes, but it's a lot of the ones that I've worked with. They make a bunch of money, but their associations are still the exact same people that they grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so that thermostat setting for the money is set by those people. The temperature is actually not always set by you. It's set by the people around you. And that's why you hear all these things in personal development. You are the five people you hang around. Well, why? Because they alter your thermostat setting. And so for me, I'm always, and I encourage you this too, it's the next dream. It's the next vision. If you catch your dream, you're in big trouble. Yeah, that was why I was freaking out when we first met. I caught the dream. And I was like, this. I thought that I was working on a lifelong dream. And all of a sudden I'm 35 and I got it. And now I don't know who I am. I don't know what my identity, if I'm not chasing down this massive dream, I don't even know what that makes me. Yeah. I'm blessed that right now I have an NDA on this, so I'm, I can be careful, but I, I am, I'm I'm like, I forgot we're on, I'm like, I'm talking to you. (laughs) I'm, uh, I'm blessed that I am working with a very, 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 very significant uh, political figure, former one. And this person is really struggling because, okay, you were, let's just say, a senator or the president of the United States. That's pretty high up, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get there. What the heck is next? Ooh, yeah. And so, and that could be someone listening to this who goes, I got the promotion. Mm -hmm. I got to six figures. I got to 145 pounds. I got to whatever waistline I wanted. I got to the dream man in my life. Yep. And what happens is it's the scariest zone of life. It's actually a happier state in life, everybody, to be pursuing something you're not in possession of than to possess something and there's nothing to go get. It's actually death of your spirit. Wow. And so, it's always coming upon all of us to have people around us that help us. What I just call vision stretch, stretch our vision, dream, imagine, consider the possibilities. These are all things. You have a powerful imagination, a powerful dream state. You have people around you. And it's important to have people around you who support your craziness, who support your weirdness, who don't yeah. think you're nuts, right? Like, I don't want realistic people around me all the time. I want some damn yeah. crazies, right? <laughs> and you have to rem- remember this. Weird people rule the world. Yeah. Weird people change the damn world. Oprah Winfrey, what if she was realistic, right? This, yeah. you know, She's uh, uh, abused as a child, molested as a child, not in perfect physical condition. African-American woman, especially at the time she came up, like- yep. Someone should have said, are you crazy? Like, are you, but there was someone somewhere going, no girl, you got this. You could do this. It's, it's possible for you. And the reason I admire her so much is I watch her and I, I could tell when she gave the show up, she had O Magazine, right? But I could tell watching her in that window, she wasn't in full stride, you know, like what is Mm. really next, but I've watched her find it again. And so in our life, it's always important to have the next one. The next one. People say, well, when's enough enough? I, it's the most offensive thing my family says to me. And I'm not talking about my children. My children don't. <laughs> yep. I'm talking about you know, those people, this. You know yep. those people you got in your family. They're like, hey, when's enough enough? And I'm like, yeah. when's enough helping people? When's enough contribution? When's enough spiritual growth? When's enough... Uh, uh, uncovering of new possibilities and ideas. When's enough memories? When's enough magic moments? Never, never. (laughs) Like I don't want there, there isn't enough. And, and if there was, the Lord would take me now. And so if you, you guys, it's interesting, but in all of our faith on some level, there's even somewhere we're going after this life. Yeah. So, like if you think it through, death is having nothing next. Mm. And I'm in love with the chase. I'm in love with the journey. Like I met Rachel Hollis on this journey. I I get to talk to all of the people who follow her today on this journey. What a blessing. What if I would have stopped after I was worth a hundred million or two hundred million or it was just about money, or I go, nah, I just want to really help super famous people because they're famous, right? Yeah. Like, what if I'd have stopped? And that's why I always tell you, I told you this before the call, you're so important in the world. And I know you don't love hearing that, but like, you're so important in the world. 
you have an obligation, Rachel, to keep growing. You have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to continue to see the next step, the next place, the next. I find myself for you, even though we don't talk all the time, and I'm not kidding you when I tell you this. Again, I know everyone's listening to me and you talk with each other here, but (laughs) I find myself in prayer sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes about you, like that you'll have more clarity of where you're going, that you'll that you'll see the next steps in front of you, that you'll dream bigger. I do it for myself. I do it for other people in life. But it is ironic. I must tell you, you come up a lot. And I think about you. Sometimes I'm just driving in the car. I'm thinking, I hope she's focused. I hope she's out there with the next step. I hope she doesn't believe all the press clippings right now, mm-hmm. that she's doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, And I know you don't. So anyway. Yeah. No, I love that. I lo- and by the way, I feel those prayers because there are days, like you said, that you know you, someone's got to carry you. You you can't do this on your own. Um, that was so so powerful for me. The first time we talked was, uh, I always feel like when you're you're searching, searching when you're on a journey like that, where for for months and months, and you're like, what's the answer? What's the answer? And then someone says it, mm-hmm. and it's the simplest thing in the world: dream a bigger dream. Yep. Dream a bigger dream. And I, I was thinking about this as you were talking about people thinking like, if only I have this, if only I made that, if only I got that promotion. Something that I think happens to a lot of women in my community is they think, if only I could get married, mm. if only we could buy a house, if only we have – and they keep getting those things. But even when they're getting those things, they can't – like you said, they can't be present where they are. They can't – have the gratitude and appreciation for what they've been given in that moment. And they're constantly, oh, I got to do something else. I got to go get the next. I love this idea that we can be grateful and appreciative of our blessings today while still wanting something more for tomorrow. I'll tell you something funny about that. My wife is crazy. And um, (laughs) I met my wife when I was five and she was four. And um, we were high school sweethearts. And so I love my wife, but I, I also know there's a little crazy, right? <laughs> and um, where I got this from, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how the whole blissful dissatisfaction thing came up. You're going to laugh. So <laughs> somewhere around about three years ago, when she would start making really great food and we would eat it for dinner, you know, I've got two kids and we would be at dinner and <laughs> it's embarrassing to tell you, but you'll love this. So she would I just started like all of a sudden about age 45. Five, this habit starts all of a sudden and she she'll eat the food and she's biting into like something she's made like lasagna or something and all of a sudden we're talking at the dinner and I'll hear her next to me mm, 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 like moaning with pleasure about how good this food <laughs> tastes right it's and it's nuts and so I'm like what the hell are you doing in front of the kids like stop this it's embarrassing right <laughs> we would go to restaurants and she's a pretty obviously a very pretty woman and she'll do it in restaurants with like people around, like, oh, mm. you're like, I'm like, babe, you're doing it out loud, just so you know, right? <laughs> like, stop. We get home one night from my birthday party, and she done it at a dinner with a couple guys next to our table, and they were enjoying it. Let's put it that way. And I'm like, babe. Yeah. And um, I go, hey, before we're gonna do it, you know, a married couple might do on a birthday, and I'm like, hey, stay right there. I'm going to go upstairs. She had done it with a steak at this dinner. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to go grab a steak and I'm throwing that in this bed because you've never made those noises before in our life. But as I'm, I'm joking, she's laughing. She goes, babe, every time I enjoy that bite like that, it makes me want to take another one. And I went, say that again. She goes, it's so good. When I let myself enjoy it like that, I want to take another bite. And I went, Oh man, we're not going nowhere. I got to go take some notes. <laughs> you know, you and I are like, that's a podcast. Yeah. And it dawned on me, all of us, if we bite into something pleasurable and we really enjoy it, does that make you not want to take another bite? No, it makes yeah. you want to take another bite. So if you want to enjoy, if you want to take another bite out of your life, enjoy the current one. Yeah. If you enjoy the current one, you'll want to take the next bite. But if you're constantly delaying, no, I can't enjoy this. That's when you lose your hunger. That's when you lose it. And so the formula is enjoy every bite. And it's it's simple but beautiful. And for me, this achiever kind of go, go, go guy, I'm like, yeah, 
I need to do that. I'm always on to the next damn bite all the time. And I've just learned that this moment is mine. It's never coming back again. And I've got to be present. And when I'm present, I'm happy. And so I stop. I would just advise all the ladies, you don't need to project into the future all the time. Just enjoy the moment. Mm. It's yours. God gave it to you. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. It'll make you want the next one even more. So good. Uh, I want to talk about the, you did a podcast and I'm so mad. My notebook is in the other room, so I can't reference. I took like four pages of notes off this podcast where you were talking and I sent you a, like I sent you a voice memo that day and a text that day and told you I was like at church with you in the car uh, where you were talking about this idea of, and I'm, I don't remember the actual title, but it was like when people want to set out to achieve a goal, but they get so bogged down almost like by indecisiveness. They don't know how to let, and you were like, you just, you have to make a decision. You have to go all in. You have to take massive action. Like stop hemming and hawing about all the things that are wrong with this situation and do something. Do you remember the podcast I'm talking about? Of course. Um, And I just thought it was, again, it's like this wisdom that we should know, we should know that. But when you hear someone break it down for you in that way, it was super powerful for me, even just stuff that they were going through as a company. It's like almost the more cooks that get in the kitchen, you have more help, but then it almost makes it more confusing. And that one was so clarity invoking for me. Will you just talk about that idea a little bit about like, yeah, it's just died. Yeah. It's it's, well, it's, it's allowing fear to, to take your life over, as you said earlier. So this is something that and by the way, when I say my wife's crazy, I say that as a man who adores and loves her. Oh my gosh, yeah. I, and I have gotten to hang out with both of them yeah, together yeah. and, and there's so is, much love there. Yeah, and there's there's definitely mutual craziness between the two of us. <laughs> um, but having said that, listen, these things where you're constantly hemming and hawing and not deciding and, and, and not real sure and it's not ready and all that, just so you know, um, you weren't born that way. Mm. You've learned it. Your children aren't that way at all. Your children and you, when you were a child, are constantly jumping in and trying things that they're not ready for. So it's, true. It's the beautiful part of life. And 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 we learn this over time from fears and sometimes from our parents. Don't do that. Don't think that. Sit up. And we over time, we start to hem and haw and become indecisive. If you just – if you have children – just for a second, give yourself the gift and think about how beautiful their courage is, how beautiful their taking action without being ready is, how beautiful their enthusiasm is. And their, and you know the big one? Their curiosity. Mm-hmm. I, I actually enjoy not being completely ready, even though I work on being prepared and all that stuff. But once I make a decision, I'm all in. I really do believe, and we've all heard this before, but like I'm kind of proof of it. A flawed plan executed with ferocity and certainty, certainty, is far greater than the perfect plan executed too late and with timidity. Mm. And so I'm always executing kind of flawed plans. And I'll course correct as I go. Nothing is always the way in the beginning that it is in the middle that it is in the end. But we must get started. I can't teach you to drive a parked car. And so many of you, and I love you, are trying to steer through your life in a parked vehicle. You must get it moving. There yep. must be forward progress. Massive action with certainty is a killer of obstacles. And so get going, make the decision, call the shot, right? Adjust as you go. It'll be okay. Have some curiosity. Be more like your children. And one thing I'd say to everybody about this and this is a hard thing to accept, but I really believe in some people use their children as an excuse not to take action or not to take risks, or not to go for their dreams. And I will tell you, if you go to your, you know this, if you go watch your children at their Christmas recital, or a t-ball game, or a, or a, uh, a ballet uh, recital, you go watch them. There's 50 children there. Who do you see? You see your little one. Yeah. They're your world. And you know what that's like. Everywhere you go, if you walk into their classroom, you see yours, don't you? You see yours. And guess who your children see? You ready? Yeah. They see mama. Mm-hmm. They got one mama. One. And their view of the world, of what they're capable of, and how they should behave, and the happiness level, and the joy, and the passion that they see or don't see in you, shapes their 
thermostat setting shapes their identity. And your children right now, they love you and they're proud of you because you're their mama, but they're going to get to an age where they figure out who you really are, just like you did with your mother and your father. And it's not good enough to say, sweetheart, you can be anything you want to be. Well, why aren't you mom? Mm. Why aren't you mama? You can, you can be the president. You could start a business. You can, you can do anything you want. Well, why aren't you mom? And they see this in you. They, and you know what your children want for you, just like you want for them, but accept even more because their whole view of what's possible in life is through the prism of your life. And your children want you to be happy. They want you to be happier, mama. They want to see joy and laughter and happiness and love from you and through you. And it's not just the love you give them. They want to see that you feel loved. They want their mama happy. They want her at peace. They want her growing. They want her winning. They want her increasing. They want that. They only have one mama or one daddy, and it's you. And so because of that, it's not good enough just to love them. It's not. You've got to become the best version of you possible so that their thermostat setting changes because of the example you've set. And I know that's a hard thing to say, and I debated whether to share that with everybody today, but I want to speak for your children. Not that I do, but you know darn well what I just said is true. Yeah. They just want mama to be happier. They just want yeah. to be more joyful. And the more you're like them, the more joyful and happy I think you would be. Absolutely. Uh, that and by the way, I feel like I was over here like I, I have a really hard time when you're on when I'm interviewing you to not be like mm, yes preach because that's <laughs> how I'm used to interacting with you. Um, so powerful. The and I know that so many. I, I am positive that people are going to listen to this with tears running down their face mm. because they know that it's true. Yeah. Because it, it and whatever that looks like for you, whatever that version of more is, you know we are the king and queen of you pursue what makes sense for you and your family. And maybe for you, that's building an empire. And maybe for someone else, that's you're going to be the most incredible stay-at-home mom the world has ever known. But Can I say something those, about that right Yeah, there? of course. Yeah, of that. course. And that's important because when I say the best version of you, there are some of you who the best version of you, you're, in a, you're at a workplace right now. And you, in your heart, you'd be happier if the conditions eventually presented themselves to be home. And for mm -hmm. some of you that are home, if the conditions were perfect, you'd be doing something outside of that home. And so it's not a career or money. It's your version of bliss. Whatever makes you happy, life on your terms. Funny, I interviewed uh, Jessica Mendoza and she was at, she gets asked in interviews all the time. So how do you balance your career and your children? You know, and I luckily didn't ask her that because she's a dear friend of mine. <laughs> and she said to me, she goes, Ed, you know, men never get asked that. Yep. What? Why is it that women get asked that? Right? And it's, there's like this notation sometimes for women that it's either or. It's what makes you happy. It's, you, you're the number one thing that makes me the most happy is I now work from my home. So I sort of hybrided it. I'm not a stay at home dad. Yeah. But I'm a work at home dad. And that's yeah. what I found was my groove point. I was in a career where I was gone all the time, like maybe some of the ladies listening to this, and my heart was calling me, if I could get my finances together, I need to be home more. So I've, I found a work from home career. It could be exclusively working in the home. That's your focus. That's Christiana's focus, my wife. My wife works in our home constantly in, a, in, in an unbelievable way. And it's okay, whatever it is, but your children want to see you in your groove, you in your mode, you happy on your terms. And it doesn't have to be a career. It doesn't have to be president. Of, there's only one of those, right? <laughs> but it's, it's the president of your own life is the point. Yeah. So one of my favorite things that you say, and you've said it many times, and I'd love if you would share it with the audience, is the idea of when you get to the end of your life mm -hmm. and you get to heaven. And God introduces you to the man you could have been. Yeah, that's my whole deal. So um, this one gets me emotional lately more and more just as I get older and my children get older. I've only got my son is 17 and he's going to be a senior next year. And I don't know, just 
you just think about it. My dad's got cancer right now, as you know, he's sick. And so mm -hmm. I think about this, but the dream of my life is that I believe it started with my son. I'll tell you the quick version. My son and I used to go to this car wash all the time on, on after church on Sundays. And there'd be this man there every Sunday, nice man. And he would always be reading a newspaper and he'd always, you know, say hello. And for one Sunday, and I didn't mean to be snide back to him, but I was, he goes, Hey, how old's your son? I said, he's six. And he said, um, well, enjoy the six-year-old because when he turns seven, the six-year-old's gone forever. And as parents, we all know that's true. And he goes, and believe me, when he turns eight, the seven-year-old version's gone forever. And that's true. And I said back to him, and I didn't mean this rudely, I said, sir, when did that process stop for you? And he just sort of looked at me and I go, I mean, like, at what age did you stop replacing yourself with the new version? And he looked at me, kind of tilted his head, and he goes, I don't know, but it did. And I said, you should evaluate that. That's life. We're supposed to mm. constantly be replacing the former version of ourselves. And it just got me to thinking. I had a heart attack when I was 30, and I thought that was it. It wasn't, luckily. And, you know, my dream of my life is that when I die, I hope the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. But I have this kind of really strong belief that guides my life which is that when I'm gone, he's going to introduce me to the man I was born to be, the destiny version of me, the one he made in his image and likeness, the one that I was capable of becoming. And he's going to say, Ed, meet Ted. And Ted's my identical twin, the ultimate possible version of my life. Ted helped all the people, traveled the world, had the memories, had the moments, did the things with his children, made the contributions, felt about himself the way he wanted to, did all the things on earth he was born to do as Ted. My dream is that when I meet that ultimate version of me, we're identical twins. Mm. And Ted says, man, I've been watching you all my life. I'm proud of you. You did it all, brother. And I'd say, man, I've been chasing you all my life, Ted. And he'll say, you caught me. Mm. To me, heaven is that when I'm gone, I meet that person I was destined and born to be, the one I'm capable of, and we're identical twins. Hell would be we meet each other and we're total strangers. And I don't want to die having not become the man <clears throat> I could have been yeah. in all of those areas. And I don't want any of the ladies or the men listening to this to have that life go by and not become that woman she could have become. Mm. That confident, strong, powerful, peaceful, happy version of her, whatever that looks like. And so for me, most of the decisions I make in my life, honestly, I'm pretty good at this, not great. Is like, does this decision, this action move me closer to being Ted or further away? Closer to the ultimate version of me or further away? And I do most of the things. Like today, being with you and this amazing group of people, I feel like moves me closer to being the man I was born to be. And that's mm -hmm. why it feels so good to be doing it. And I know in my heart when I'm doing things that don't. That's yeah. kind of how I know I'm going down the wrong road. This doesn't put me closer to that man. It makes me further away. And that's sort of my governor. It's sort of the governor and barometer that I try to make decisions through. So. Oh, my gosh. Everyone, ladies and gentlemen, and my let. <laughs> and now the thing is, if people didn't already know who you were, which feels impossible, but if listeners didn't already know who you were, they now understand why I love you so much and I'm so grateful for the role that you play in my life. And if you are not like, I, I'm positive you all just got fired up, your hearts are full, there are so many episodes of the Ed Milet Show, anywhere you can get a podcast that you are going to go binge listen to now that are going to light your hearts on fire. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. I am so stinking grateful that everyone got to hear your wisdom today. And I know that so many people were touched by the message. Blessing for me, Rach. Thank you so much.